Hello, and welcome to Steady State Podcast. We are really interested in backstories, the experiences on and off the water that make people the rowers, coaches, and coxswains they are today. By sharing these stories about the humanity of rowing, we're revealing a narrative about rowing culture that celebrates real-life experience from launch to cockseat at every level. Thanks to everyone who listened to our last episode, recorded live in May at Deer Apple Farm on Vashon Island, Washington. After a long day and a couple of hard ciders, we started swapping rowing stories. So of course, we recorded it. Tell us what you think by leaving a review in your favorite podcast app to help our podcast get noticed and reach more ears. This episode is made possible in part by Concept2 and Lake Washington Rowing Club. Become a sponsor for as little as $65 at steadystatenetwork.com sponsors. Concept2's new version of their ERG data app lets you set up workouts, including the Concept2 workout of the day right from the app. You can customize your display, connect your Apple Watch, and more. Download ERG data today in your app store. Lake Washington Rowing Club is full steam ahead organizing the 43rd Head of the Lake Regatta, set to take place in Seattle on Sunday, November 6, 2022. It's the last big head race of the season. LWRC hopes to see you there. For more information, visit headofthelake.org. Today, we're talking with Jasper Liu, a U.S. senior national team member and founder of rowingdojo.com. Jasper and his lightweight doubles partner, Zach Hees, will represent the U.S. at the World Rowing Championships this September in the Czech Republic, with a focus on Paris 2024. We admire Jasper for creating rowingdojo.com, his platform for sharing the most useful information he's picked up from some of the country's best coaches. We're Rachel Friedman and Tara Morgan, and this is Steady State Podcast. Sit ready. My name is Jasper Liu. I'm a lightweight rower on the national team right now for the U.S., and currently I'm in Austin, Texas, where I train. There he is. Hello. Hey, Jasper. Nice to meet you. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Every episode, we put our guests in the hot seat for a lightning round of questions to help our listeners get to know you. Are you ready? Single, double, or quad? Uh, I love the quad, but I row the double most often. I also love the single. I don't know. I'm happy, happy to be in any boat. Bow seat or stroke seat? Sit in bow right now. Uh, sprint race or head race? I am much more of a sprinter, so I'll take a short race any day of the week. Uni suit or tank and trowel? Got to go with uni. Uh, shoes or barefoot on the erg? Uh, I always wear shoes. When I'm barefoot, my, my heels just slip out all the time. So, Yeah, that happens with a lot of folks. Yeah. Uh, also on the erg, calories, watts, or splits? I have splits up there, but I don't really, on uh, steady state, pay attention too much, mostly the power curve and the heart rate. Uh, best place to row? Best place to row. My favorite place I ever rode was Lucerne. Um, they call it Lake of the Gods for a reason. It's just insanely beautiful. And last but not least, coffee before or after a row? 
always before. I try not to drink coffee after about 10 a.m. So it's got to be before training then for me. We'd love to hear what was going on for you when you found rowing and what what got you hooked? So I started rowing in college as a walk-on. My freshman move-in day, the crew was out front of all the dorms stopping people that looked tall and athletic, saying like, hey, come try out for you know, the crew to come try rowing. Um, I was not tall. I'm 5'10". Um, but my mom knew that lightweight rowing was a thing. So she was like, oh, you should go ask them if they have lightweight um, crew. You'd really like it. So um, the heavyweights taught me how to row. Then I joined the lightweight team for racing. And I, yeah, really loved it. So that was at, that was at Penn. Um, and here I am nine years later now, I guess, eight or nine years. And those first couple of days with the team, what was it that drew you in? Do you remember? Definitely the, the competition aspect of it. And I played sports my entire life. So baseball a lot growing up, but also in high school, ran track, played soccer. Um, yeah, so really loved being on a team, being athletic and being competitive. And that atmosphere just really fit for me. Did rowing come naturally to you as somebody who came up as a competitive kid? Um, as much as anyone, I'm decently good at a lot of sports. So just like picking up a new motion wasn't that foreign to me and I could learn easily the, you know, the first 90% of it. And then the last 10% has taken these nine years and still not quite there yet, but. What, uh, so we, one of the things we always talk about with rowing is, you know, we work with a lot of kids that maybe haven't found the sport for them, or I work with adult learn to row. And so does, uh, Rachel about people who hadn't really found a sport or kind of looking for a new sport. And the thing that I always find is so unique to it is that literally your motion and movements and vibe affects the boat. It's a very interdependent sport. So when you got into it, you know, you're coming from an, a soccer background where you're on a team, but your kick doesn't directly affect, you know, your teammate for for instance. So was there something there that was really attractive to you that that interdependence and that concert and synchronicity? I guess, yes. Uh, not immediately when I joined when, because you learn to row, you know, we learned to row on the erg like most people do. And then you get an eight and you row by pairs and by fours. So it's not as much of the, the team, like, and feeling the boat aspect of it. But um, yeah, once we rode by eights for the first time and, and started trying to race for the first time, um, that was a really, you know, everyone talks about uh, the concept of swing or moving in, in um, synchrony and definitely a, a cool feeling that you can't replicate anywhere else. Do you remember anything from those first, uh, you know, that first season or two that your coaches said to you that really stuck with you, that helped you, uh, like that really helped you have like a big light bulb moment? Well, I I could say one technical and one motivational. So the motivational one was probably like my first week on the water, you know, it's, it's September in the fall, my freshman year and the head coach was of the varsity came out and coached one of the Lundero sessions and I was in bow seat. And afterwards he came up to me and he was like, Oh, what's your name? I was like, Oh, Jasper, sir. And he was like, shouldn't have put you in Bowsey. You're pulling the boat around. And I was like, uh, all right, like I can be good at this. That was a real motivational thing for me. And, um, you know, made me feel like I, I belong there. I was like, all right, I could be good. Um, and I guess the technical point or uh, a rowing technique point would be um, thinking about the boat, like sliders. So like I said, we learned to row in the erg, like everyone else does. And, 
as soon as you think about um, the boat moving underneath you and the concept of like the sliders, as opposed to um, static org where you come up and, and jump off the catch, that that was a light bulb moment for me on the water. When Have you ever coached before? Have you been a coach? Not formally. Um, I love talking about rowing technique and I can, you know, point stuff out to people individually. And, um, but no, I've never had a, a crew of my own or, or novices or anything and, and had to formally go out with on a session with them and teach them how to row. Do you think that's anything you'd like to do someday? Sure. I mean, part of the reason for founding like rowing dojo was I have acquired all this knowledge about the sport. Um, and all this experience with it that I'm happy to share. I feel like I can communicate it well in the pe- ways that people don't traditionally hear from their coaches. And a lot of um, coaches in the U.S. don't have the same level of rowing experience in, that I do. So um, happy to try to share that. And whether I'm going to be a, a coach of a program in the future or not, that remains to be seen. It's definitely a, a possibility, but um <clears throat> I don't know, I feel like there might be other ways I can help progress the sport too. Where do you fit into like paying it forward? Because we know that you've been recognized by Philadelphia City Rowing and we'd love to hear how that happened and how that came about and your relationship to them. But, you know, one of the things when people go up to an elite level or or even just have experienced some success and maturity in the sport, they feel a sense of, of obligation to pay it forward and they feel very passionately about that. So how does paying it forward kind of look in your daily life or in your future with rowing? At this level, there's not a lot of time or energy available outside of training to pay it forward or to do much else. Um, so I would say that there, yeah, it's, it's, it's harder than it looks. So if you see a lot of, of the national team members not doing that kind of stuff, it's, it's very understandable. It's a, it's a large time commitment to have to train this much and a large energy commitment. Um, but outside of that, yeah, I feel really lucky to have had the opportunities that I did. So like learning to row at a Ivy league program and, um, getting to go to an Ivy league school in the first place, um, that kind of stuff. And then training with, um, some of the best coaches in the country as on this level. So I, I recognize that I'm super lucky with that experience and, and fortunate to be in that position. So I want to do what I can to, to spread those, I guess the, the resources that I've um, learned along the way or gained along the way. So basically information is the main one I can do. So founding the, the site and just like answering people's questions and like responding to DMs on Instagram whenever I can. And, and I think that that's a great start and you shouldn't um, feel like that that's not enough. <laughs> we understand that you train a lot. And I think that for you to even take that step to say, here's all this knowledge that I have and I want to share it with the world and to set up your website, the Rowing Dojo is fantastic. Um, I don't know if you know, but um, several years ago, I founded RowSource, which is a master's resource. And um, it came out of the same place, having been involved with rowing for enough time and uh, coaching long enough to have lots of people asking me basically the same 12 questions and not knowing where to get the answers. And so I started RowSource and, um, and I looked at it as an opportunity to, to pay it forward to a sport that had brought a lot to me at that point for already 10 or 12 years. So I'm curious what uh, happens with the rowing dojo in the long haul. Yeah. 
it's cool. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about your relationship to Philadelphia City Rowing? We had them on a season three episode of a club spotlight and we had Caitlin and George and Mai and Christina on the show and had a great conversation about PCR, Philadelphia City Rowing and what they do in the world. And we understand they give you an, a special award a couple of years ago. Can you tell us about your involvement with them? Definitely. Um, so I, as I went to Penn, we rode out of Boathouse Row. And then when I graduated, I kept rowing on the elite level at, out of Penn AC and then Vesper. So a long relationship with rowing in Philadelphia. Um, but I also realized throughout my rowing career there that it was super exclusive. Rowing in Philadelphia is very exclusive. You can either row if you're a part of one of the boat clubs or a college there, or if your high school has a rowing team. Um, and if your high school doesn't have a rowing team, then, or middle school or college, then really it's hard to get in the water. So, um, yeah, like I talked about, I recognize that I was very um, lucky with my opportunities and, and wanted to, to help give back. So PCR, Philadelphia City Rowing is the only place in, in Philadelphia where um, public and charter school students who don't have a high school rowing team can get on the water and they do it all for free. Um, and they also offer a lot of um, out, uh, resources outside of rowing to their kids. So like nutritional counseling, uh, mentoring and tutoring. So I volunteered as a tutor. It was really not that much, you know, one day a week, but um, helped um, some students with, you know, normal high school stuff, homework and, and just hanging out with them. And uh, it was funny because after the semester ended, I was at an event with PCR and, and I had just done some races um, on the, you know, the national team level and, and the kids came up to me and, and the coaches are like, we didn't know where you were at. You were really good. Um, <laughs> so they thought, you know, it's just a, a normal guy, which is um, super cool and, and humbling, you know, I was just, just there to, to help them out. Um, so at the end of that year, they awarded me their champions award for just being um, a good role model and enough service to their community, which was really amazing. And, and it meant a lot to me. We also have spent a lot of time talking to Texas uh, Rowing Center. Um, we feel like we've uh, really concentrated a lot of our episodes. Uh, we've interviewed Tracy Falkenthal and Napoleon Griffin, who you probably know from Texas Rowing Center. Um, but it's one of the top performance training groups in the U.S. I've seen videos with you where you talk about the ideal conditions year round. You know, there's a lot of great condition, water conditions, and and obviously they do a great job there. So, how did you end up at Texas Rowing Center, and what's your role there? Do you have a role other than just rowing and training? I ended up at Texas Rowing Center because um, we established a high performance program here last fall. So I was at Vesper um, with my coach Peter Mansfeld and a few other athletes. And we had been coming down to Austin to Texas Rowing Center in the winters for um, training camps. So when it's too cold or crowded in Philly to row, we'd come down here and get a couple months of solid training in through January, February. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, we made the move here. Um, TRC was really excited to, to have us down. And um, it is a great spot to train year round. So that's been crucial for us. Um, and getting the results we've gotten so far this year. And yes, for when we moved down here and established a high performance team, we also set up a nonprofit organization to fundraise specifically for the um, high performance team. So TRC High Performance is a nonprofit, and I am the executive director for 
that nonprofit. Um, so I work, you know, it's, it's part-time, but I do the accounting, the fundraising, um, all the communications and marketing for, for our team um, here. Yeah. Is, is that a typical approach for, uh, I know that raising money to be on the national team is kind of a big deal and being able to support yourself to be able to train and, and not have to work and not have to do 15 different things is, uh, is that a typical scenario where you're setting up a nonprofit and raising money for your uh, performance programs? Most boat houses in general are nonprofits already or boat clubs. Sure. Um, so they would raise money, but then that money gets split between, you know, the facilities, the masters, the juniors program, the summer programs, and the high performance team if they have one. Um, here, Texas Rowing Center is um, a its own corporation. It's not a nonprofit. So we set up our, a separate nonprofit so that we could fundraise. And also it has a benefit of um, every dollar, dollar that we raise that people give is going directly to our national team athletes. That's fantastic. Impressive. Yeah. We heard you say we, we moved down there. We started a nonprofit. Who's the, who else is involved in, in this right now? So there are seven athletes here at TRC high performance right now, um, including myself and one coach. And we have a fantastic board made up of Texas Rowing Center members that we established um, last fall as well. So the seven athletes are five men, two women. Everyone's been on a national team in some aspect before. Um, and so far, it looks like everyone's going to be on the team this year if all goes to plan. So we already have um, five of our athletes confirmed on the national team out of seven. So just two, two more to go. Excellent. Congratulations. Thanks. So Tara, I think we need to be real honest with Jasper here um, is that Tara and I are not high uh, performance athletes. If that's not already obvious, uh, you know, we come from a long line or, or many, many years of masters <laughs> rowing. And that's kind of our, uh, that's kind of our sweet spot. We give you mad props for all that work. We really want to talk with you more about where you came from, where you're going. Yeah. Well, I'm happy to talk about rowing in all aspects. So awesome. Good to it. Well, that's, that's a great cue up, Rachel, because one of my favorite questions to ask any rower, whether you are two days into learn to row or you have been rowing for, you know, 50 years is describe the perfect stroke. Well, I spend about 30 pages describing the perfect stroke on my website. So I don't want to, to summarize it too much, but if I had to use some adjectives, it would be um, beautiful. There's a beauty to it, you know, there, and efficiency. Um there's no wasted movement. And um, I think the perfect stroke also has to be, you know, have a little bit of oomph on it because you are moving the boat, you're going, even if you're just um, out for a leisurely paddle, then, you know, having a little bit of send on that shell and feeling the run um, feels really good and looks really good too. Well, we'll be sure uh, ourselves to, to check out that whole 30 page description and we'll make sure also to add a link to our website so other folks can take a look at that as well. And uh, I love this notion of uh, the, the oomph behind it, but making it beautiful. We hear that from a, lo a lot of coaches, um, most recently uh, Marcus Brown at UW. Um, he just made the transition to coaching at UW and said that there's a big difference moving from coaching like kids and masters to coaching, you know, high performance uh, elite collegiate athletes and really training the eye to look for the little details to find that perfect stroke. Yeah, I actually uh, trained with Marcus in Philadelphia for a couple of years and we're really good friends. So we were recently oh. at Henley, um, ran into each other and spent about two hours talking about 
um, kind of the same stuff that was on the podcast episode, actually. So yeah, I can add my number one uh, thing I see rowers do wrong. Yeah. Um, which yeah. is the, and we talked about it a little bit, the lunging, the reaching, skying the blades, all the same thing. Stop reaching so far. Like you don't need to row longer than your body allows you to. So um, I went out with uh, my mom is a master's rower. She started after I did and picked it up and, and loves it. Um, but she has a really, uh, she's not super tall. She has really long legs and a short torso. But so every coach is like, Oh, you have to, you know, reach longer, get longer. And, um, it doesn't really, uh, work if you just like have more body angle. So if you just swing from like 11 o'clock to one o'clock on the clock, you're actually going to get the same length of a stroke because you can compress your legs more. Um, so if you have your body vertical, you can get your butt to your heels more, and then you have a longer mm-hmm. leg drive, which is going to be way more powerful. Um, and it, it's counterintuitive to a lot of people because it feels like you're not reaching as far, um, but you have way more control of the blades when to put them in. You have more leg drive. And um, yeah, I guess don't be scared of rowing 95% of your length. It's way better than rowing 105% of your length. You know, just ask the other people in your boat mm-hmm. when you do it. I 100% agree. And it's the most challenging thing, I think, to work with newer rowers on, especially newer, shorter rowers. And um, I know we've talked about the difference between rowing in a boat and rowing on the erg, but I think when I've, I've worked with rowers to sit up a little taller and think more about compression, um, pretty darn quickly, they're seeing lower splits on the erg. And that's a big light bulb moment for them. Yeah. People love numbers. Yeah. <laughs> What do you think is the hardest part of the stroke to master? Like, what are you working on right now? First, what I'm working on is um, the getting the body positioning right on the recovery. So when I get into the front end, I can immediately apply power without, it's hard to put into words. I'm working, um, yeah, just essentially being able to, to move naturally and to be in a position where like all of my effort that I'm putting in all my muscle tension is going into the um, foot plate and the oars and not going into bracing my body in some strange way or twisting and, and in order to keep the balance. Yeah. I know a lot of folks uh, work on that specifically uh, finding the correct body angle, the right prep, uh, finding the right muscles to use to hold themselves up not lunging all of that right into the catch. And I'm actually really uh, glad that you t- talked about that specifically because on uh, the Rung Dojo on your website, you have a really nice piece about um, the erg and how the erg at the front end really sets up learn to rowers and newer rowers uh, kind of in the wrong way. We don't feel the same thing at the front end as we do in a boat. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Totally. Um, it's one thing I'm, I'm passionate about is that, you know, erging is not rowing. It's great training. It will get you fitter, but it doesn't teach you how to row well in a boat and go, um, fast at, at race pace. So, um, on the, on the erg, your body weight is moving back and forth. So, you know, if right now I'm, let's say I weigh 160 pounds, um, you know, my torso probably weighs hundred pounds or so of that and my arms combined. So, um, at the front end, I have to, you know, my torso is moving, towards the erg and then I need to change it to move away from the erg. So that's hundred to 160 pounds, um, 
changing direction from left to right versus in the boat, you have um, the boat moving underneath you. So you need to change about 30 pounds, you know, the weight of the boat and your water bottle and your oars to go from um, left to right. So on the erg, it, it sets you up to have to push a lot harder on the front end and prepare your body weight to, to change that direction versus um, in the boat, you only have to push as hard as you need to change that 30 pounds of weight changing directions as opposed to the 100, 150 pounds of weight changing directions. And I love thinking about it that way and how, truthfully, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure if I put the two directly together before, which is a little bit mind boggling considering how long I've been doing this, but how that then affects, let's say a brand new rower or a newer rower in finding the catch, right? There's a lot of missed water with new rowers. And is it just because, not just, but one of the reasons because it feels so much lighter up there than on the erg. I think that's one reason, but also on the erg, it, you know, it's like if you're doing a, a, a squat jump or a jumpy on the ground, like you can kind of like let your body fall down to the ground and then use that spring tension in your legs to, to start the movement, movement back up. And same thing on the erg, you can kind of crash into the front end and like bounce off the foot plate to, to start the drive. But if you do that in the boat, then you're, when you're bouncing off the foot plate, you're, you know, you're not connected to the water, you're not pushing the legs, you're not um, you don't have the blades in and that's when all that missed water happens. So I think it's, it's more important to, um, yeah, actually slow for teaching your rowers, like have it slow down and, and have them feel what it feels like to have the blades in all the way at the front end and in that compressed position and be like, Hey, this is what you're looking for every stroke, as opposed to, um, letting them, you know, kind of like really bounce off the front end or drive the legs as hard as they can right away. Yeah, this is interesting. Uh, uh, I, not that long ago, I think I was actually at um, the U.S. Rowing Masters Conference this year or last year. And there's a guy whose name I should remember who I don't, who I believe is Russian. And he always does a presentation about uh, like all the physics of rowing. I'm going to have to look. There's Kleshnev or Volkanote. There's two guys. One of those, one of those. And um, I, it went real deep, a lot deeper into the physics that I could really follow. But one thing that he talked about was um, coming into the catch and using the foot stretchers like a trampoline. And that's something that I've thought a lot about, but in, in what you're saying is that really coming up to the catch and thinking about bouncing off the foot stretchers may not be the right way to think about it because you're really allowing yourself to like rush into the catch and bounce off. Just, I'm just, yeah, just there's nothing balling ideas here. <laughs> right. Um, in terms of like jumping, yes, you need to use those kind of muscles. Um, so like thinking about like, if you're going to jump off trampoline, like you're using the same muscles that you would use um, to, to propel yourself off, you know, from the catch. But you can't like, it has to be some control on the, the recovery. So not like tension, but just like kind of body awareness and being ready to, to take the catch on the way in. You can't just fall into it and fall into the foot plate. Um, that's when lunging happens. That's when mist water happens, um, ripping all that stuff. Steady State Podcast is made possible with listener support. Today, we're sending a big thank you to our Patreon crew members, Bobby, Lenore, Jill, Arthur, Claire, Kim, Dave, Nick, Lisa, Kelly, Jen, and Patricia. They're all really important to us. Do you want to join our lineup? Find out more about our Patreon support levels 
and benefits at SteadyStateNetwork.com slash Patreon. In two, we're back with Jasper Liu. That's one, two. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you advice about was advice for the masses. So my question is, you know, we talked to the everyday rower, the real life rower that you, you would see maybe at Texas Rowing Center or Austin Rowing Club going out for a row. Um, what do you look for? What should someone look for in a great partnership? Like what makes him a great partner in the double? And what should maybe someone look for if they're looking for a doubles partner? Um, just any advice about that? Um, I'd say same thing as like a life partner. You need to have a shared set of uh, values and, and what you're looking for out of the rowing itself. And then also some humility. So um, I think Zach and I have a great relationship in that um, we have a lot of trust that the other person is one doing everything they can and doing their best. And so um, we also don't have a problem with communicating, saying like, hey, like, you know, practice was like rough today. Like what was going on? What'd you feel up there? And taking criticism. So if he was saying, if he says like, oh, you know, the boats doesn't feel set today or whatever, I'm not taking that personally being like, oh, well, you know, that's your fault. You weren't setting the boat. It's more like, okay, like how can we both, or how can I improve? How can we both improve to do that, to get better? So um, one that makes uh, the boat go faster too, makes us happier to train together, which is great. Um, I don't think there's a specific, like, you know, physical characteristic that you can tend look for. Um, but just, yeah, having that humility, having that trust and, and respect for the other athlete is really important. What does a typical training week look for you guys look like for you guys right now? Um, we're training about 12 times a week. So we'll either have one off day, I, I guess 11 times this week. So like an afternoon off and then a Sunday off or, just like we're still row Sunday morning and take two afternoons off. Um, but yeah, the steady state sessions are between 90 and 120 minutes of actual rowing. And then we'll do pieces like once or twice a week and um, two lifts per week. So, so I want to ask you about um, how engineering plays into this. Cause I know when I've asked learn to row students, what do you do for a living? There tends to be, and you ask kind of a big group of rowers, there tends to be kind of a group of uh, people who love terminology, people who love science and logistics, uh, architects, engineers, doctors. Um, you sort of see these similarities, people who love language uh, come into rowing. So how does rowing and engineering work for you in your mind? I, yeah, so my degree was in mechanical engineering and then I worked in civil engineering for a few months, or I guess, sorry, a few years after graduating, um, always had a really analytical mind, I guess. Um, also both, um, my parents were in the medical field. So combining kind of that, you know, biology with engineering leads me to the, all the biomechanics that I think about with rowing, which is really interesting. Um, and I guess, yeah, it's, it makes it, I really like breaking down each part of the stroke and thinking about, um, like I was describing between the erg and the boat. So like, when this much weight is moving back and forth, how much force do you need to apply to the foot plate versus like in the boat, if the, just the single skull is moving underneath you, how much force do you need to apply to the foot plate to move it and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, just, it, it's fun to break the stroke down or break your body movements down to different parts and, and figure out what's going on. I love that. I, I love talking to people about what really, 
turns it up, turns their crank with rowing because there are so many people who um, they learn in such different ways, kinesthetically, auditory, auditory, and all of the, all of those ways. But at the end of the day, you know, some people just really resonate with the challenge of rowing, with the fact that it never really comes together, or it comes together so rarely um, that it's this constant striving uh, and constant honing. Uh, with the sport. Is there any part of the stroke that you feel like you've just really, you've nailed that down? Like you're, you're feeling really great about um, like, I'm good with grip. Like, is there a part of the stroke that you're like, I'm good. I wish I could say that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think the one part of training where I've, um, it wouldn't benefit me to get much better at is uh, like strength, like weightlifting in the gym. So I've been always been like pretty good at, at, um, in the gym. So like, you know, I, I still lift to, to maintain and to build endurance and stuff. Um, but you know, the marginal gains are smaller there, but I don't think anything in the boat, there's no, you know, it's all a cycle too. So once you fix something, there's always something else that affects and you keep, keep getting better, but in, in every way, um, I don't think I have anything perfectly down yet, even after all these years. Well, and I love hearing that, not just from you, but from all sorts of rowers, no matter how long they've been in it. And I think that's why we stick with it because each time you're in the boat, you're working on something new or you don't, you know, you don't know what's coming next. And there's always right. that, uh, fine tuning that happens no matter what boat you're in or who you're rowing with. And that's what keep, keeps us coming back, um, day after day and year after year. Absolutely. So we know that you're in Texas, you're training with Zach, uh, what's coming up next for you guys. What's on your racing schedule? Our next competition is the World Championships, which will be held at the end of September. It's the last week of September um, in Rosice, Czech Republic, which is a little bit outside of Prague. Um, so that'll be super exciting. We'll do a camp, training camp um, in preparation for that with the rest of the U.S. national team beforehand and then fly over to, to Prague in mid-September. Is there anyone that you'd like to do a shout out to, coaches or mentors or people who've been with you along the way? Anybody you want to name and, and have on the podcast? Um, my girlfriend, super supportive. And uh, there's a lot of travel that goes into this, so which is not always uh, the most fun. Um, but yeah, I can't thank her enough. Um, you know, I've been with um, Zach and then my coach Peter for uh, three or four years now. So um, obviously they're super integral to everything I'm doing. You know, rowing's never an individual sport. Even if you're a single scholar, you need a coach, you need um, people helping you get your both places. So, um, those guys, and, and also had a, a great college team that introduced me to the sport and, and helped me get better to the point where I was like, um, let me see if I can keep doing this for another couple of years. Right. With sights set on Olympics, 2024. Uh, Paris, right? Yeah. Paris, 2024. Yeah. But, um, that's cool. I know you said in an article that I read about, you have a daily routine, like you do the same a couple things every morning. What are those? Wake up, make the coffee, make PBJ, uh, toast, and then sit down and do the cross puzzle and eat my breakfast, drink my coffee before practice. Crunchy <laughs> or smooth peanut butter. This is really key here. Oh, crunchy for sure. <laughs> yeah. This is like hard hitting interview. right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Jasper, mm -hmm. we could probably talk with you a lot longer about a lot of things, um, but thanks for being with us this morning and giving us a chunk of your day. We know you've got uh, more training and things to get to today. 
we're looking forward to see what happens with you over the next couple of years. So we'll be following definitely. Great. That was great to get to know you guys. And thanks for having me on here today. Yeah. Thanks so much for taking time. It's been awesome. All right. We'll talk with you soon, Jasper. Have a good one. Take care. Yeah. Thanks. See ya. Bye-bye. Well, all right. That's Jasper Lou. Jasper had a lot to say about rowing strokes, right? He had a lot to say about technique. Obviously, he's spending a ton of time deep diving into the stroke because he's trying to go to the Olympics. I mean, mm-hmm. it makes total sense. I kind of wish that every master's rower could do a camp or do like a focus uh, that deep because mm-hmm. it'd be interesting to see how they would come out of it. I know one of the clubs I used to be involved with used to host a sculling camp that was a week long day camp basically eight to two or something like that and i remember people would come out of it and be like oh my god not only did they hear a different coach's perspective but they got to deep dive into really specific little tasks and things and really get challenged um i think that's why people go to crossberry and things like that but jasper to jasper's point you know there's a lot to explore and i think he's very emphatic about the drive and the start of the drive which you know, not a lot of people have a lot of time to think about um, that for too long, um, but I appreciate it, you know. Yeah, he definitely got me thinking about the front end in a little bit different way than I ever have. And like, for me, that's amazing. I mentioned this while we were talking to him that, you know, after all these years for me, 22-ish, 23-ish years in the boat, when I can have a light bulb moment, like I think that's awesome. And I don't know if it's super outside the box of other things that I already know, but it's helping me think about the front end in a new way. And it's definitely going to be something that I bring to practice when I'm coaching my master's sweep rowers and the learner rowers that I'm going to be working with this summer. Um, And I agree with you not everybody can get the chance to go to camp, but I feel like sometimes at practices, we're like, here's this thing that we're going to work on today. And then tomorrow we're going to work on this thing. And then the next day we're going to work on this thing. And when I went to um, the Endeavor uh, Racing Alliance camp uh, a few months ago, what kind of blew my mind is we basically worked on this one thing for three days. And at the end of three days, everybody was like, Oh my God, mind blown. I'm a brand wow. new, I'm a brand new rower. So wow. I've been thinking about that a lot as a coach where we're always like, we got to do this. We got to do that. We got to work on this thing today. And then the different thing tomorrow, and we got to move through and we got to keep moving. And like, what would happen if we said, we're going to take the entire week, whether that's three sessions, four sessions, five sessions, whatever, to work on this one thing, working one drill, that's it. Well, <laughs> And I would say that um, when I used to row for Conabear, Eleanor, our head coach, did do that. She would say, this season is about the mm. catch, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think there's two points to that because this podcast is about rowers, coaches, and coxswains, right? And I actually think it makes a coach's job a little bit easier if you say to yourself, okay, I'm going to plan a deep dive into release, mm-hmm. right? a deep dive into body angle, a deep dive into grip, you know, for a week or six weeks or a year, you know, even it's, it makes your job as a coach uh, less reactive and more proactive. Yeah. And 
you have, when you teach adults, especially I found and kids too, they're used to a semester of focus on something, Mm. a semester of history, Mm. you know, and it also opens you up to supplemental materials. You're like, here's every video I love about the release. Here's uh, drawings and the British rowing thoughts on this, or Mm. here's this coach's webinar about this, or you bring in a guest coach. Um, I just think it's, it helps people see progress like they go, oh, this was my catch or my release at the beginning of this. And this is my release at the end. And a really astute coach can be like, you, okay, now see what you're doing. You know, this is how far you've come. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So speaking of progress, so, you know, I've been out of town for a couple of weeks. I've missed two weeks of uh, practicing with my team and I'm getting down there today to coach. And I don't know what I'm expecting, but I hope that there's been progress in the last two weeks. We've got a lot of uh, younger or newer rowers on the team. And I would love to be surprised with seeing uh, a bunch of progress with the team. So uh, we'll see what we get tonight on the water. <laughs> yeah, hope, hope coach Rachel's proud. I hope so. Yeah. And I am excited because the team is solidly looking at some uh, putting together a regatta schedule for the rest of the year which we weren't sure we were going to do starting at the beginning of the season. The team was so small and not, we were not competition oriented, but there's been enough interest that we're starting to hammer together over a schedule, including <gasps> boats without barriers in Oakland, taking uh, the slot of masters nationals this summer. So that would be huge. If DC strokes ended up sending a small contingent of folks out to Oakland fingers crossed that that would be so fun so yeah coming up on our next episode is a chat with row along founder john steventon about indoor rowing and building community during covid until then check out our podcast archive where you'll find interviews with a huge variety of folks from rowers coaches and coxswains to club founders presidents nutritionists and olympians Steady State Podcast celebrates real-life experience from launch to cock seat at every level. Search the archive at steadystatenetwork.com slash podcast dash topics or listen anywhere you get podcasts. Hey, Tara, I think some listeners might not know that Steady State is more than a podcast. Totally. We should definitely tell them. We've got virtual events happening every week that bring together the rowing community from across the country and actually around the world. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. I really look forward to Friday mornings when we get together for coffee chat on Instagram Live because we get to talk about rowing and racing and technique, but we also delve into things like DEI and motivation slumps. And it's always neat when rowers from around the world tune in. And so we hope you'll join us on Fridays, eight o'clock West, 11 o'clock East on Instagram Live. Grab your favorite mug and add your voice to our conversation. And we also know that everyone sometimes needs buddies to help get them through long pieces on the erg. I know I do. So we lead Steady State Sundays the fourth Sunday, basically, of each month at 6.45 a.m. West, 9.45 a.m. East. And when you register for the 60-minute Steady State erg workout, we give cues and insights to keep you motivated along the way. So you can work at your own pace and then stick around after to chat. Yeah, I really like that at your own pace. I row at about a 16. (laughs) 
So um, if you want to find out more about any of our events and claim your spot in our lineup, go ahead and visit steadystatenetwork.com slash events. Steady State Podcast is a production of Steady State Network, aka Tara Morgan and Rachel Friedman. This episode was written and produced by Tara and Rachel and edited by Tara. Rachel manages our website and social media. Our theme music is by the Free Harmonic Orchestra. Thanks so much for listening. In two, way enough. That's one, two, way enough.